Welcome to the online Bible study. This week we are doing the final chapters of Esther, chapter 9 and 10. As we have studied this wonderful book, we have seen how God has been working behind the scenes to save the Jewish people from annihilation. Let's open our Bibles to Esther, chapter 9, and begin looking at verse 1 as we see the triumph of the Jews and the celebration of Purim. Verse 1 reads, Now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposed occurred in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. Notice here that it is the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. The appointed day for the annihilation of the Jews had arrived. The Jewish D-Day. But with Mordecai's new decree, the D and D-Day now turned from destruction to deliverance. We see in verses 1 through 19 the success of the Jewish people against their enemies. The enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower the Jews, but the strength of the Jews acting together and with God's help, they ended up overpowering those who hated them. Not only did the Jews work together, but as we see in verse 3, all the officials and the providences and the satraps and the governors and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews also. The Jews were able to help save themselves from annihilation by preparing for the attacks of the, of the enemy. Now, if they had not prepared themselves, the Persian citizens who hated them would have tried to wipe them off the face of the earth. And who knows? How many would have survived? But God's sovereignty worked out the circumstances to preserve the Jews. But the Jews were still required to prepare, not just sit around and expect God to miraculously wipe out the enemy. No, yeah, God could have. But instead, he required them to prepare when we face our enemies, we also need to prepare, don't we? Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we're going to go out and kill our enemies, does it? No, but we can prepare and have a ready defense for the gospel. Unbelievers will seek to stop our witness. And sometimes they will simply ridicule or mock us. But at other times, they seek to persecute and kill us. So how do we prepare? Every day we need to put on the armor of God as it shows us in Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 18. We must be ready to give an answer to every person who asks us about the hope that there is within us as it shows us in 1 Peter 3.15. Then in Matthew 544 it shows us that we must not hate our enemies but rather love them for the cause of Christ. 
We must, ladies, be in the Word on a daily basis and consulting with God daily, living according to His will. And in the end, we should be able to say, as it says in 2 Timothy 4, 7-8, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Ladies, we need to prepare. Because as it states in Ephesians six twelve that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, do we? But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of the wickedness in the heavenly places. It is only through the power of God that we will be able to defeat our enemies, just as the Jews found out. The Jews were prepared, and because of it, they won victoriously over their enemy. Notice how the word fear keeps popping up here. We saw it in, back in Ephesians chapter 8, verse 17, and now again in chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. This is the same Hebrew word, pakad, in all three verses. It can mean dread, an emotion of fear and terror, but in some cases it can also mean awe and reverence. Now one of the problems with our world today, as we see in Psalms 36.1, it says, is that there is no fear of God before his eyes. We do not see the fear of the Lord in the world today. Like Pharaoh in Exodus 5.2, people are saying, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? The Persians, they learned very quickly as to whom the Lord was. They saw for themselves, didn't they? Verse 5 shows us that the Jews defeated all of their enemies. God had fulfilled his promise. But notice, as we talked about last week, the Jews only attacked in self-defense. They weren't out just to kill for the sake of killing. They strictly acted in self-defense. Verse 6 shows that in Shushan the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Then in verses 7 through 10, mentions the 10 sons of Haman were also killed, but they did not plunder the property. Scripture shows us three times the fact that they did not plunder the property in chapter 9, verses 10, 15, and 16. This is a very important fact. It shows the only motive of the Jews was to defend and protect themselves, not to steal property. It was in taking spoil from the enemy that King Saul lost his kingdom, as we see in 1 Samuel 15. But the Jews did not want to make the same mistake. In that the Jews were not the aggressors, and all ten sons of Haman were killed, they were probably trying to carry out their dad's decree. And some of those 500 men were probably supporters of the sons of Haman also. When God puts us 
into situations. We need also to check our motives. We need to make sure that we are staying within God's will and not carrying things too far and doing what we want to do. God put Mordecai into his position as prime minister and he honored the Lord in that position and used his authority to do the will of God. We need to also make sure that we don't take the positions that God places us in for granted and that we don't misuse our authority and that God is honored through our own lives also. When we live our lives according to the plan of God, those around us will see the power of God in our lives also. Verses 11 and 12, the king hears of how many were killed in Shushan the citadel and shares it with Queen Esther. Then asks her, what is your further request? He wanted to make sure all was done to help out the Jews of their attackers. Let's read verse 12 together. It says, And the king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan the citadel, and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's providences? Now, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Or, what is your further request? It shall be done. Now look down to verse 13. And we see Esther's response. Let's read that. It says, Then Esther said, If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. To assure a complete victory over the brutal enemies, Esther here makes two additional requests. She asks that the Jews in Shushan be given one more day to continue pursuing the attackers who sought to slaughter them. And second, that the bodies of Haman's ten sons be hanged on gallows as a warning and deterrent to any future aggressor seeking to slaughter the Jews. Remember, Haman's strongest supporters were in Shushan, where they had bowed down to him and received benefits from his favor. Esther wanted to make sure that there were no future problems, so she sent a clear message that it would not be tolerated. Now another commentator stated that Esther's request for Haman's sons to be hanged on the gallows was a form of humiliation. This exposing of criminals' bodies after execution is referred to in Joshua 10, verse 26, where it shows that Joshua smote them and slew them and hanged them on five olive trees. The king granted Esther's request, and 300 more men were killed in Shushan. Notice verse 15, they did not plunder the enemy's property. The Jews in the other providences had killed 75,000 in one day. That shows how many people actually hated the Jews and wanted to destroy them. The Jews were outnumbered in the empire. 
You remember last week, we brought out that the population was approximately 100 million. Their victory was a tribute to God's sustaining power, and the faith of the Jews to know God was with them to defeat their enemy. Then, let's look on further as we see in verses 17 to 19. The Jews in all the other provinces rested on the 14th day and celebrated their victory while the Jews in Shushan fought one more day, then rested and celebrated on the 15th day their victory. God had answered their prayers and they celebrated their victory. How many times do you think that we stop and celebrate because God answered our prayer? How many times do we at least pray and thank God for answering our prayers? Once we get an answer, do we just go on living our lives? Or do we appreciate what God has done? God answers our prayers three ways. He will say, yes, I will. Or he will say, yes, but my way. Or third, he'll say, no, that's not the right plan that I have chosen for you. We need to thank God even when he says no, don't we? That is an answer to prayer. Esther 9, verses 20 to 32, now introduces us to the Feast of Purim. The great deliverance of the Jews from was instituted as a permanent festival. The date of the wonderful victory was placed on the Jewish calendar to be celebrated year after year as a reminder that God had delivered his people from annihilation. Now, as stated in verse 22, they were to make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. The name given to the festival was Purim, which is taken from the Babylonian word Pur, meaning lot. The name Purim was chosen because, you remember, Haman had actually cast lots to determine the days when the Jews would be annihilated. So in establishing the festival of Purim, the Jews made three significant declarations, as we see in Esther chapter 9, verses 27 to 28. Let's look at that. The Jews established and imposed it upon themselves to their descendants and all who, jo who would join them, that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout the, every generation, every family, every providence, and every city, that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. So first, we see of the three significant declarations, they and their descendants would never fail to observe these two days. Second, 
They would observe the celebration of Purim within every city, every province, and every district. And then third, they would never let the account of their deliverance fade from their memory, nor from the memory of their descendants. Now, the observance of other festivals is mandated by God, as we see in Exodus 34, where you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, you have it in Leviticus 23. You have several uh, numbers, 28 to 29, and Deuteronomy. You see it in chapter 16. But the Feast of Purim was not mandated by God. It was written by Mordecai. The Feast of Purim is practiced to this day. They do remember it every year. On March 4th, 1996, on the eve of Purim, Hamas murdered 14 Israelis, children, and adults, and wounded 130 in a terrorist attack in Tel Aviv. I'd like you to look at this point a video in regards to this. Please watch. From all sides of the Middle East peace process, condemnation. The Hamas has declared war on Israel, and Israel will act accordingly. I uh, condemn strongly The enemies of peace have murdered completely innocent Israeli citizens, including children, in their hysterical, determined, fanatic attempt to kill all hope of peace. With the peace process now on hold and Israeli politics in turmoil, are the terrorists winning? This is the end. We can stand no more. The terrorist attack today in Tel Aviv, which killed at least 13 people and injured dozens more, could have been even worse. Israeli officials say the suicide bomber had targeted a crowded new shopping mall filled today with children in costumes celebrating the Jewish holiday of Purim. When he spotted a police guard at the mall, officials say the terrorist simply detonated his explosives on the street in front of a line of people using an automatic teller machine. Today's was the fourth suicide bombing in Israel in the past nine days. Attacks last Sunday in Jerusalem and Ashkelon, yesterday in Jerusalem and today in Tel Aviv, have claimed at least 58 lives. And there's been another casualty. The peace process in the Middle East has been stopped dead in its tracks. Israel's delegation in Washington for peace talks with Syria has been recalled home. It is the sense of the government that uh, in this period of crisis and mourning, uh, it is the right thing uh, to do. And so the... Uh, Two or three days of negotiations with Syria that were planned for this uh, week uh, have been uh, postponed. Also imperiled by the terrorist wave, the last stages of Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking and the political careers of Yasser Arafat and Shimon Peres. The Israeli Prime Minister was jeered again today by angry crowds that had come to the scene of the crime. After an emergency meeting with his cabinet late in the day, Harris announced a new anti-terrorist command authorized to enter Palestinian territory, quote, 
to Hamas and the Islamic Jihad wherever they are. It is clearly a war against those people who wants to cause agony and pain and who wants to destroy Israel and who wants to destroy the peace process. No doubt about it. But outside the Defense Ministry, more angry demonstrators lit bonfires, denounced Perez, and called for his resignation. No to war, yes to peace. Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat gathered tens of thousands of followers today in Gaza to denounce the terrorists and to announce a crackdown on paramilitary groups. My brothers, there is an attempt to destroy the Palestinian dream and peace. These attacks and violence and terrorism hurt the Palestinian people, and its target is not only the peace process. Even as the crowd cheered, Arafat's security forces were making arrests. And tonight, Arafat personally called Perez to claim the capture of, quote, the mastermind of three of the last four bombings. Israeli leaders say this is just a down payment on actions Arafat must take to save his credibility in Israel. The Jews face their enemy every day. This is sad, but this is why we need to be continually in prayer for Israel. Purim has been celebrated in this way. They, the Jews will begin their celebration with a fast on the 13th day of the month, as we see in verse 31 commemorating the date on which Haman's evil decree was issued. They go to the synagogue and they hear the book of Esther publicly read. And whenever the name of Haman is mentioned, they cry out, May he be accursed or may his name perish. The children bring a special Purim rattle called a Gregor and use it to make noise every time Haman's name is read. On the morning of the 14th day of the month, the Jews again go to the synagogue where the Esther story is read again and the congregation engages in prayer. The story about Moses and the Elimelechs in Exodus is also read. Then the celebrant, celebrants go home to the festive holiday meal with gifts and special foods and the celebrating continues on the next day. They also send gifts to the poor and needy so that everybody can rejoice together. The Feast of Purim, however, has changed through the ages, just as everything else changes in life. Today, Purim is a time off and no school. A time to party. I have a video that I want you to see that talks of, shows you how they celebrate Purim today in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. Please watch.
picture of Jerusalem. It's absolutely crazy. People dressing up like lunatics, like animals, like wizards, witches, whatever you want. There's people giving their charity and having a munch here, having a munch there. This is Israel, baby. It's Jerusalem. Nothing like Purim. It's mad. Rastafara or just funk? <laughs> Everyone must have a happy poem, so let it be written, so let it be done. Favorite movie is the first part of the Ten Commandments when the Hebrews are still slaves. I don't care for the ending very much. You can see how sad it is 
that they don't really recognize any longer the true meaning of Purim, just like we don't today recognize the full meaning of Christmas and Easter. They're all commercialized. But that's how time goes. They forget the true meanings. The festival of Purim was also confirmed by Esther, as we see in verses 29 to 32. Now Mordecai sent a second letter, apparently to encourage faithfulness in the celebration of Purim. He wanted his message to carry as much weight as possible to ensure the people's faithfulness participation. For this reason, he encouraged Esther to write a letter also, putting her authority as queen behind the festival. Sending his letter of encouragement to all 127 provinces, he re-emphasized the importance of making the day a period of fasting and mourning. We didn't see that in the video, did we? Esther's decree confirmed the instructions included in Mordecai's letter. Also, note that the institution of Purim as a permanent festival and the guidelines that were to control it were recorded in the official records. Chapter 10 is a short and to-the-point chapter. It has three verses. Verse 1 talks about imposed tribute on the land. Now this was royal income raised through taxation of the citizenry. It is understood here that King Ahasuerus was tying his prosperity to the presence of Mordecai. Ahasuerus benefited from the presence and wisdom of Mordecai, just as the Pharaoh benefited from the presence of wisdom of Joseph in Genesis 47. Now Joseph, he rode in Pharaoh's chariots as his second-in-command, just as Mordecai was second in rank to Ahasuerus. But the most important items were written in the Chronicles, like when Mordecai saved the king's life, all the previous decrees that were written, and the letters from Mordecai and Esther about Purim. Writing them in the book of Chronicles showed both importance and permanence. Remember, nothing ever was gone once it was signed and sent by the king's signet ring. It is no difference here. King Ahasuerus wanted Mordecai's story written in the Chronicles so that any future king of Persia would know about Mordecai's greatness. In the book of Esther, we clearly see God at work in the lives of individuals and in the affairs of a nation. Even when it looks as if the world is in the hands of evil people, God is still in control, protecting those who are his. Although we may not understand everything happening around us, we must trust in God's protection and retain our integrity by doing what we know is right. Esther, who risked her life appearing before the king, she became a hero. Mordecai, who was effectively condemned to death, rose to become the second highest ranking official in the nation. No matter how hopeless 
our condition or how much we would like to give up, we need not despair. God is in control of our world. Now we have studied the books of Ruth and Esther and have seen them reaching across the centuries to join hands with believers today and to say with us, be committed. Live a life that is faithful to our Lord. I have enjoyed doing this study with you and I hope that you enjoyed it and that we'll join me again in our next study. Until then, God bless.